In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So good to see you all again after uh, a bit of a break. Uh, we had a couple of weeks break uh, for different reasons. But um, tonight we continue on our series about practical spirituality. And tonight we're talking about a huge virtue, a really difficult one, and that is the virtue of chastity. And uh, indeed, it's, it's not just a, uh, a difficult virtue to attain, but we've got a lot of ground to cover uh, in light of what the fathers speak about this virtue. But if we start off by asking ourselves a question and say, why did God create sexuality in man? Um, would it be for just procreation only, or is it a bit more than that? And I remember reading an article by Bishop uh, Musa, the Bishop of Youth Affairs, in an old article for uh, El Caraza, which is the official magazine for the Coptic Church, and he wrote that God created uh, sexuality not just for the sole purpose of the preservation of the human race, but it takes on a different angle totally, different to the um, animal kingdom. We know in the animal kingdom that um, animals mate in certain period of, of the year and then they're not sexually active, but it's not the same with humankind. And why is this so? Bishop Moses also gives us the answer in the same article. And he puts it in a very eloquent way. He says it's because God wanted humans to share and enjoy a holy kind of love that is likened to the love of Christ and his church. You might not think of Christ and the church when we speak about sexuality, but actually that's what it boils down to. He wanted us to share and enjoy a holy kind of love that is likened to the love of Christ and his church. And St. Paul puts it in this way. He says in Ephesians 5.32, he says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. This is how St. Paul speaks about the mystery of the sacrament of marriage. So it's a great sacrament because it mirrors the relationship between Christ and the church. But it's, it's a holy sacrament as well, because sexuality within holy matrimony uh, is so much different to any other sexual relationship outside of marriage. To the extent that the Apostle says to us in, the, in his letter to the Hebrews, he says, Marriage is honourable among all, and a bit undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And again we read in 1 Corinthians, that we are told flee sexual immorality. In some translations it uses the word fornication. And it says every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality or fornication sins against his own body. So sexuality within marriage is uniquely blessed because it's a sacrament and it matches the love of Christ and his bride, the church. While sexuality outside of marriage is distinct from any other sin because it actually defiles the image of the love between Christ and the church itself. And that's why we are told again by St. Paul, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. 1 Corinthians 6.15 And St. Athanasius, he relates this to us by making a beautiful analogy. 
to contrast sexuality uh, within and outside of marriage. This is what he says. He says, if a soldier goes out to war and kills 20 of the enemy uh, soldiers, he is decorated. But if in a time of peace he goes out in the street and kills one man, he is condemned. It is the same action done in different circumstances with completely opposite outcomes. So the sexual act within marriage and the sexual act outside of marriage, it's the same sexual act, but the consequences of them is totally different. And the evidence that human marital love is blessed is given to us in one of the most beautiful books of scripture, and that is the book of the Song of Songs. And it's a book that's been so misunderstood by many people. It's actually been attacked as a pornographic book. For some people do not understand the beauty of the relationship between the soul and Christ, or between the soul and God. But there is nothing sinful or pornographic about this book at all, or even about the marital relationship. It actually imitates the love between Christ and the church. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. This is the marital sexuality, and that's why it's so different to the sinful sexuality that is outside of marriage. Sinful sexuality is actually concerned with lust. It's concerned with greed and taking, uh, exploiting or seizing, um, self-gratification and so forth. Whereas actual marital sexuality is about giving of oneself to another. And that's why marital sexual love should be modelled on the same love of Christ and the church who gave himself for it. So in other words, <clears throat> within marriage, the person gives of himself to their partner. And that's why marriage and sexual immorality is actually so much abhorred by the Lord in Scripture. And we will talk a bit more in detail about that. We are told to flee sexual immorality or fornication. And someone might say, that's easier said than done. We are bombarded on a daily basis by things that are, um, have sexual innuendos and connotations. And of course, it's the most elusive virtue is the virtue of chastity. You think that you have reached to a certain stage only to be overthrown by it again and to be thrown into the pit one more time. But the Bible tells us about the perils of this sin. So listen carefully to what St. Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And that list is quite, quite actually uh, comprehensive. When you think about it, that the Bible has not left one of these things without actually condemning the actions of it. Nowadays, of course, it's very difficult to talk about things like homosexuality because you are considered as a bigot, uh, as a racist, um, you know, that you don't have any um, accommodation for the different types of people out there. But we cannot go past scripture when it comes to these matters. <clears throat> and that's why in this sweeping statement of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, the Bible condemns all sorts of sexual immoral acts. Fornication um, means premarital sex. 
while adultery, of course, means extramarital sex, both condemned by scripture. And the two degrees of that one sin, um, except the punishment might be different because actually a fornicator commits sin against his or her own body and that of the person that they commit the sin with. Whereas adultery, the person commits sin against his own body, against the partner, and also against the person that they have committed the sin uh, with. But note how homosexual acts are also condemned. It talks about both homosexuals and sodomites, referring to both participants in the male's uh, homosexual act. But also lesbianism is condemned by scripture. We find this clearly in the book of Romans. It says, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. And the Lord actually adds to this list of sexual immoral acts all sorts of lustful passions. Listen to what he says. Listen to what level he takes us to. He says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed sexual idolatry with her in his own heart. So this is the level that the Lord actually takes us to. Forgive me, don't worry about, uh, you know, what I look like or, or this hot weather. It's just I'm actually going through a bit of a virus at the moment. So that's why it's actually not helping. So look at the level that the Lord actually takes us to. The Lord takes us to a level, if a person looks at a woman and desires her in his own heart, then he has already commit, committed sexual adultery or committed adultery with her in his own heart. It's a difficult situation to be in, but the Lord actually requires nothing less of his people. And of course it goes without saying that a woman looking uh, with lust upon a man or a person looking with lust to the same sex is also uh, guilty of the same um, adultery in their heart. And today, of course, the list gets bigger and bigger for pornography actually has become such a big major problem in, now, uh, in our days nowadays. Pornography will lead to a lot of sexual immoral acts, sexual fantasies and unnatural acts that maybe you are all familiar with because we are surrounded by these things in society. But, but while condemning these immoral acts, the Bible does not explain to us actually how we can um, fight against these acts and how we can actually try to avoid them. To do this, we need to draw upon the experience of the church fathers or the desert fathers. And this is uh, what they give us in terms of expertise. They actually tell us that there are some basic factors that we need to keep in mind in order to reach this uh, virtue of uh, chastity. This is what they say. They say, if you want to control your sexual desires, if you want to reach the virtue of chastity, first thing you need to do is to control your stomach. Control your stomach. And they say that it is very unlikely for someone uh, overcome by gluttony to be able to achieve chastity. And this is actually the consensus of the opinion of most of the church fathers, early church fathers. They say that a full stomach ignites the passion of the flesh. And it makes sense, because if one is not able to control his or her passion for food, they will certainly not be able to control their passion for sexual desires. So they say, control the stomach. But they also ask us to control our sleep. The fathers, they say that oversleeping, 
um, actually contributes to increase in the sexual drive. So one has to fight against the oversleeping in order to avoid falling into sexual sins. Even scripture itself tells us that we need to fight against the oversleeping. For example, we are told in the book of Proverbs, two verses that are very clear about this issue. Proverbs 6, 9 says to us, How long will you slumber or sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? And if you think that this might be just only a spiritual, uh, a spiritual direction to the person who is maybe lazy in his or her life, Proverbs 20.13 actually makes it so much more clear. It says, do not love sleep, lest you come to poverty. Do not love sleep, lest you come to poverty. So control the stomach, control your sleep. And also they talk about controlling the temper, controlling temper. And the fathers insist that if we cannot control our temper, then we'll not be able to control our carnal desires. The fathers very clearly classify sins and they say that actually anger and fornication, they belong to the same category of excitable sins. This is how they list them, excitable sins. And one of the fathers tells us that the demon of anger and the demon of fornication are the one and the same demon. So a person who cannot control their anger is the person who will have difficulty attaining the uh, virtue of chastity. And they say that one who is easily excitable to anger will be easily excitable to the commands of the flesh. So we have to control our anger. And this is what one of the fathers tells us about this. He says, as a person progresses in mildness and patience of heart, so also does he in the purity of body. And the further he has driven away the passion of anger, the more tightly will he hold on to chastity. So the less angry I am, the more closer I am to the virtue of chastity. And this is given to us um, by John Cassian in the second conferences uh, in the book called Conferences of St. John Cassian. And there are two more factors that also we need to be careful of when we are trying to reach this chastity virtue. Particularly, I suppose, with young people, because young people uh, can be affected by these very easily. That is the problem of drinking, drinking alcohol. And alcohol is a very potent stimulus of the passions of the flesh. And resistance to sexual sins diminishes when one allows himself even to drink, even in a moderate amount. So we, one must be very careful with regards to alcohol. Even the great uh, Shakespeare summed it up when he said, that it creates the desire, but takes away the performance. Take, creates the desire, but takes away the performance. So even Shakespeare warns against the use of alcohol, that it can drive a person to lustful desires. And I cannot count for you the amount of times that we as priests hear so many horror stories about drinking and what it can lead to in terms of fornication. Let me share one story with you that is given to us in that book, Practical Spirituality, by Father Athanasius Iskander. He relates this story that is very vivid in his mind. And it's a sad story indeed. It concerns a 16-year-old girl of German descent who was very religious, and she used to come and babysit this priest's children when they were, when they were little. 
And I was so happy with her as a babysitter because she actually read the Bible to the children, something that is very unusual to find that a babysitter can do that. It was a rare find. But one day her mother said to her, you don't have a life, why don't you go and attend the neighborhood New Year's party? And her daughter agreed and she went. Someone gave her this funny tasting uh, juice to drink that night and she drank it. Not only did she lose her virginity that night, but she also realized later that she's pregnant. The perpetrator was a married man and had kids. And the mother, being a religious mother, she refused that her daughter have an abortion. And she actually was a retired nurse, the mother. And she went back to work in order to make sure that her daughter is able to keep the baby. But the end result was that the mother, being heartbroken, she actually died six months later with a heart attack. She could not see her daughter go through this anguish because of what she had actually recommended her to do. So this was because of drinking. She did not know that maybe her drink was spiked. Yes, sure. But again, maybe there are many other stories that you know of where alcohol can be actually quite a big problem. So that's another problem that we need to be careful of in regards to our aspiration to the chastity virtue, and that is alcohol. But also there's another problem, again, particularly for young people, and that is dancing. And dancing is one of the most common ways for wrong relationships to start. Because again, it can actually make a person's desire start to rage within them. And then before they know it, they might find that they've actually lost something very precious to them or have acted in a wrong way towards another because they have actually uh, let their guards down. Again, Father Athanasius, in his book, Practical Spirituality, tells us about this story when he went to the USA to actually cover for another priest who was away on a break. And after Holy Communion, this young girl, about 13 years of age, came to him crying and wanting to confess. After he had consoled her somewhat, she finally said to him, Abuna, I had sexual intercourse. And Abuna said to her, were you raped? Did somebody force themselves upon you? You know, how did this come about? And she said, no, I wanted this as much as the other guy did because I allowed myself to intimately dance with this person and then I've, all I could find out at the end of the night with the music happening and with our bodies so close together, I had no desire to resist. And she lost her virginity that night as well. So again, dancing and drinking is definitely going to uh, you know, affect the person's uh, pursuit of the virtue of chastity. Let us return to the fathers and what they say about this virtue. So they tell us that even if we control our overeating and our oversleeping and our anger, we still need another virtue before we can attain the virtue of chastity. They tell us you covet chastity, then also covet humility, because without humility you cannot obtain chastity. Why do they relate both together? Have a look at the incredible wisdom that they have behind this theory. They say that the most common problem in our fighting against desires of the flesh is self-reliance. Self-reliance, that we rely on our own selves. You say, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. I will have victory over this. I will achieve this. And let me just share with you a motto that you need to be very careful with in your spiritual strife 
no matter what it is that you're trying to achieve in your spiritual life, the moment that you start to put the words I or me in a sentence, then be careful because there might be a fall. There will be a fall. A person who relies on the self or relies on themselves, then they are actually going to be vulnerable to fall. Unless we abandon relying on ourselves, we will fail and fail and fail again. No one was ever able to control their carnal desires by self-control. just does not happen. Well, how can it then happen? This is what one of the fathers tells us. His name actually is, um, is Abbot Charman, and you can find these quotes again in the book called The Conferences, Beautiful Writings of the Early Church Fathers. This is what Father or Abbot Charman says. He says, we are unable, we are unable to acquire chastity through our efforts unless while exerting ourselves constantly, we are taught in the school of experience that is granted to us by the bounty of divine grace. And then he goes on to explain, he says, for this reason, one should persevere tirelessly in his efforts so that he will deserve to be freed from the assaults of the flesh, but thanks to the divine gift. He says it's all due to the divine gift. It's not about a person's uh, own abilities. He must not believe that he will attain by himself the bodily chastity that he seeks. You cannot attain it by yourself. In trying to explain this concept, let me use this analogy for you. Imagine a little child trying to reach um, a toy that is on a table. The table is too high for that child to reach, so he tries to stand on his tiptoes, but he can't reach. It still doesn't work. He starts jumping up and down in order to uh, reach the toy, still can't reach it. He even tries to climb on some objects or another, only to fall and hurt himself. Totally frustrated, this child has no option, and they start to cry. And the father, who is watching him from afar, reaches over and grabs the toy and gives it to the little child. The little child did not get the toy of his own efforts, but his efforts inclined the heart of the father to help him and to give him the toy. And this is exactly what you and I need to do in our endeavor with regards to the virtue of chastity. The problem is that we do the same as this little child in the beginning. We try and try and fail and fail. Then in our frustration, we cry to God and say, why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you looking after me? And God in his mercy will give us a respite from this fight for a little while. But sooner or later, the devil will suggest to us that we did this by our own effort, only to find that he smites us with another fall to find that we lose everything again and we are back to square one. But the most amazing thing is that we keep repeating this thing to ourselves and we don't learn from it. We don't learn that actually this is given to us from God and we need to be careful that we are not relying on ourselves. Again and again, it's the mercy of God who snatches you and I from any problem that we might encounter. It's not our own efforts. If we think that it's our own efforts, then we are doomed to fail and fail dismally. So then, what can I do if I fall into this trap that is relying on itself? First, I have to realize that God allows these falls for my own good. Can you believe that? God will allow these falls for my own good. 
And secondly, I must acknowledge my pride that it is the reason for my fall and to ask God to give me back His grace, to ask for God's grace back in my life. Listen again to what Abba Shaman says. He says, when someone has begun to rejoice over an extended period of purity, believing that he can no longer fall away from his virtue, he will start boasting within himself. But when, having been abandoned by the Lord for his own good, he realizes that the state of purity in which he placed his confidence is abandoning him, let him return at once to the author of his integrity, talking about the Lord. Once one has to be trained by God through these oscillations until he is confirmed by the grace of God in the purity he is seeking. He's saying these oscillations, these falling and rising, falling and rising. And these oscillations might take years for a person to uh, reach true chastity. And there's nothing more wrong with these falls and arising because they are on the road of attaining this virtue. So it's not wrong for a person to fall, but to learn from that fall and to try as much as possible to avoid falling again to that problem. These oscillations are very useful to us because they give us experience, not only in fighting against fornication, but against also pride and self-righteousness. When I know that my pride and my self-righteousness could be the reason for my falling, then I will also learn from these experiences. So do not be dismayed if you have been falling again and again in this trap. Because even the experienced and the desert fathers also went through this till they actually reached perfection. We hear, for example, about Mother Sarah, one of the great ascetics of the desert, that she fought against fornication for 14 years till she reached her freedom from this passion. And many other saints also did the same. We hear about Moses the Black, or Moses the Strong, who went to his father of confession, Saint Isidore, on one night, 13 times complaining of the sexual thoughts, till again he found freedom from this passion. Listen to what Saint John Climacus says in the Ladder of Divine Ascent. He says, do not be surprised if you fall every day, but do not give up. Stand your ground courageously, and assuredly, an angel who guards you will honor your patience. An angel who guards you will honor your patience. Through your patience, possess your souls. This is what scripture tells us. So finally, when we are humbled by the many times we thought that we have prevailed only to discover that we did not, and we fall into the state of littleness of heart or of lack of self-confidence, and we admit defeat, and that we have no ability to win this war. It is only then that God will intervene and he will grant us reprieve out of pity. Not that we have exceedingly humbled ourselves because of any virtue within ourselves, but it is because of the mercy of the Lord himself. Nothing more and nothing less. It is only the mercy and the grace of God that takes away from us any wrongdoing. But like any other virtue, I must pray about this uh, uh, struggle towards chastity. This must be my first step in the struggle towards chastity. But I must pray about this. Show God that you actually really desire chastity. That you're not just going through the motions. That you're not just doing it because you 
been told to or that it's the right thing to do or that it's the Christian thing to do but actually desire it from all your heart to live a pure and chaste life and then God will find in your heart that you really desire this he will give you a hatred for impurity that you are then able to really then aspire towards this chastity but what about if somebody can't reach this stage some people come and they say I really want to repent but I cannot bring myself to hate this sin. I like it. I love it. Well, go to God honestly and tell Him about your dilemma. Tell Him that you do love this sin and that you have not developed hatred for this sin yet. Go to Him and say with David the Psalmist and say to Him, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. One of the beautiful prayers of the Church is the litany of oblations <coughs> we don't we do not hear this prayer often because it's usually prayed in the early raising of incense in the morning before the liturgy starts and in this we actually ask God to reward those who desire to offer but have none so we we you know we thank God for the offerings that are brought to him and we ask the Lord to actually uh, reward those who have offered uh, out of their abundance and out of their scarcity and whatever little that they might bring we ask God to reward them but we also say and also reward those who desire to offer but have none I want to offer but I have nothing to offer maybe we can take our cue from this prayer and to throw ourselves at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and to say to him Lord I am one of those people who desire to offer to you but have none I have no strength in me I wish I can offer a true desire, Lord, of purity, but I'm, I'm unable to. When I actually humble myself in this way before the Lord, then the Lord will grant me my desire, my desire of the heart to live a pure life. St. Augustine was once uh, in this stage. He did not want to, uh, to leave sin. He actually used to pray to God and he used to say, God, I want to repent but I have not had my fill of pleasure yet. He wants his fill of pleasure. But God caught up with St. Augustine. And the man who lived in sin for 30 years became a bishop afterwards. So there is always hope. But beware of making vows of chastity to the Lord. Do not ever make vows to the Lord. Because when you promise something, you must fulfill it. But ask the Lord to help you into it achieving this chastity or this virtue and to say to him Lord I do not want anything to take control over my life I want you to be the one who's in control of my life so besides prayer we have to put in a sincere effort in fighting against purity it does not make any sense of course to pray to God and to say Lord I want purity when for example I'm watching pornography it does not make sense it's a contradiction or, do, or then to give in to evil thoughts without attempting to block them. You see, do not look for immediate results, but do whatever it is that you can. And this effort, God knows, will, uh, will look at your effort and he will grant you your heart's desire. So fight. Fight as much as you have power in you without worrying about the end result. And God will look at your effort and he will look at your sincerity and effort and he will give you the results not in your time but in his time I remember um, 
back in the early days of schooling, um, way back in the early days for schooling, for me at least anyway, that they used to give us three, three marks. They used to give us our progress mark. In other words, this is how you will achieve down the track what you've actually um, trying to do. They used to give you an effort mark and they used to give you an actual result mark or the actual uh, mark. So you would have three different marks in your reports for each subject. And the teachers used to always say that the most important one uh, out of these three, three results is the actual effort. Because if you're getting A's for effort, it means that you're putting in your full effort. And it means that you cannot do much more than that. And this is, I think, also what God looks at. God knows that we are no match for the devil. He knows that the devil will prevail over us. But God wants us to fight courageously, even if we lose at the end. Look at what Abba Theophan, the recluse, says it in a nice analogy. This is what he says. He says, if a soldier is surrounded by his enemies and goes on fighting until he is seriously wounded in a battle, he is decorated as a hero. But if he sees the enemy around him and raises a white flag and surrenders, he is considered a traitor and is punished accordingly. You see, same scenario. If he goes on fighting, even though he might be wounded or he might even die in battle, he is decorated as a hero because he fought till the end. But if he raises a white flag and surrenders to the enemy, then he is a traitor. So, so actually we might think <coughs> that we have lost the battle, but God counts even our losses as part of our victory. What do I mean by that? I mean by that that there is a beautiful story that can actually relate to what I'm trying to say here. It's a nice story to illustrate uh, this in the life of Saint Anthony the Great, which was written by Saint Athanasius the Apostolic. Saint Anthony was tempted by the devil in so many ways. The devil used to appear to him in the shape of beasts to frighten him. He used to appear to Saint Anthony in the form of women or gold to tempt him. But Saint Anthony resisted all this. So the, f the final battle that the devil had with Saint Anthony was that he appeared to him in an ugly shape and he beat him so much to the extent that the saint become, has become unconscious. He passed out. When his disciple found him in this state, he carried him to the church in the nearest village. And when St. Anthony regained his consciousness, he looked up and he saw the ceiling of the church was open and the Lord appeared to him sitting on the throne of his glory. And St. Anthony felt sorry for himself. And he said to the Lord, where have you been, Lord, when the devil was beating me up? Where were you when I was being beaten up? And the Lord answered and said to him, I was right beside you, Anthony, but you were doing so well that I desired to not to intervene so that you do not lose your reward. It's a battle. It's a battle. The Lord could have stopped Satan then and there. But the Lord allowed it because he did not want St. Anthony to lose his reward in fighting against Satan. You see, St. Anthony saw defeat in the beating that the devil gave him, but the Lord saw in it that there was victory worth of a reward. The moral of the story is just fight. Keep on fighting. Don't worry about the result, but keep on fighting. Let me just touch briefly on about the wiles of the enemy, because I think that if we learn where Satan actually can tempt us with, 
and how he can approach us, we might be uh, on guard and ready for his wiles. Like St. Anthony said, he says, I do not think that the devil tempted me with the same sin twice. Can you imagine that? He actually knew where the devil would come to him because he was prepared. He learned from being tempted just once. So he, here are some of the famous tricks that Satan uses against us. You might resist for a long time, but then you are overcome. So Satan suggests to you that since, um, since all is lost, you might as well as indulge uh, more and more and then try maybe later. But you know what? This is very wrong. Since you fought with courage, all is not lost. It is never lost. And you have not lost the war. You just was wounded in battle. That's all that happened. Do not give in and wallow in your impurity because this is treason. We can become like traitors then. If you lost while you were fighting, you deserve a reward because you fought till the end. And to give in to, to the suggestion of Satan that all is lost and that it doesn't matter anymore is actually he's helping you to rob you of the reward that awaits you. So stand up and resume fighting and do not give in to the thoughts of defeat. And the Lord who endured the temptations of the same devil will be able to have pity on you and to come to your aid and help you. So don't let Satan say to you, you have fallen, continue on in what you're doing. No, keep on fighting. But he also has another trick. He suggests to you that since in the end you are going to lose anyway, why bother fighting from the beginning? Just give up totally from the beginning. He tried this with one of the monks of the desert. But the monk was so clever and he said to him, No, one blow for you and one blow for me. Let's fight this out. <laughs> If you, want, if you want to knock me out with one blow, then I will have the next blow. It's a boxing match. It's a boxing match. You try to give your opponent as many blows as you can, regardless of how many blows that you receive before the time elapses. It's only at the end of the match that you will know the result, not beforehand. And who, know, who knows, maybe with one good blow, you might knock them out. You might knock Satan out. But he also has another third trick up his sleeve. He says, um, you fall into sin and you feel guilty and you want to go back to the Lord uh, in, uh, for forgiveness and for repentance. But the devil rebukes you. He says, how dare you face God to talk to him after what you have done? How dare you stand before God and say to him that you are his son? Wait a few hours, or maybe wait a few days, until you are clean, then go and pray. What would your father of confession think when you go and say to him, you have done this or you have done that? Again, these thoughts need to be stopped and to be resisted straight away. Because we must come to God as we are. We must come in our filth as we are to God, and he's the one who cleanses and replenishes what we have lost. When the prodigal son came to his senses and went back to his father, he went back immediately. And he went back with the stench of the swine, the pigs that he had been living with. He did not clean himself and say, I need to be pure before I go back to my father. No, he went back as he is in his filthy clothes. And it was his father that gave him the clean robe to put on. 
It's the Father will never despise the stench of sin when we come back in repentance to Him. He will never despise the stench of sin that are in His children as long as they come back in repentance. Because the Lord is overcome by love towards those who come back in repentance. He says, Heaven rejoices over one person who repents more than 99 righteous who are not in need of repentance. This is how much the Lord actually loves those who come back to him in repentance. And look at what the father did to this prodigal son. He ran to him, he embraced him, he fell on his neck and he kissed him, even though that this son had the stench of sin all over him. This is our position with God. When I come back to him, then he will also accept me as, my, as I am. There's an Orthodox monk. His name is Father Lev Gillot. And he is very well uh, known for his spiritual writings. He wrote once this beautiful saying. He says, you must be certain that in the same moment that you are committing sin, that God loves you. In the same very moment that you are committing sin, God loves you. See, the devil might suggest otherwise, but he's a liar. So as soon as you fall, immediately go on your knees before the Father, before your loving Father, and tell him, Father, I have sinned before heaven and before you. I am no longer fit to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired workers. And immediately you will feel the embrace of God the Father and his loving kisses towards you that he will accept you back. Go back to him with courage and know that the Lord will never return a sinner who comes in repentance to him. It's needless to say, of course, that your repentance between you and God does not count, cancel in any way your physical confession before your confession father. We call it the sacrament of repentance and confession. That there is repentance between the Lord and I, or between I and the Lord, but there is also then the actual completion of the sacrament by the actual physical confession before my confession father. Another trick that Satan will use is this. He comes and says to you, how many times have you done this? How many times have you actually fallen? Do you think that God will continue to accept you every time you go back to him? Is it a game? Do you think that yeah, he's just there just waiting for you to do whatever you do outside and then come back to him? But you know what? The answer is yes. God will continue to accept us no matter how many times it happens. When St. Peter the Apostle asked the Lord how many times he should forgive his brother every day, he was told seven times seventy. I don't think the Lord actually meant a literal um, calculation of 490 times a day, but I think the Lord was indicating that no matter how many times your brother sins against you, you must forgive him daily. Will he not give us the same chance? If he's asking us to forgive one another and to forgive a brother seven times 70 in one day, then will he not give us that same forgiveness? The all-loving and merciful God will give us even more so, much more forgiveness. When you are tempted by Satan and he says to you, how many times will you do this and keep going to God? Say to him the beautiful verse in the book of Micah, which has some beautiful encouraging words. It says, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. 
Micah 7, 8. Try to memorize that reference and to learn that verse. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. A lay person went into a monastery and he asked one of the monks a strange question. He said to the monk, he said, what makes you different from us who live in the world? What makes you monks different to us who live in the world? And the monk answered very simply and he said, we fall, then we rise up, then we fall again, and then we rise up, and then we fall again, and we rise up. You see, we're all in the same boat. It doesn't matter what image I am living under, but we are all in the same road of salvation. And do not ever grieve uh, over your falls um, by, by, by over-grieving, if I can put it in that way. Actually, one of the saints from memory, I think it was Saint Theophan, the recluse, says that this is actually a sign of pride. When you over-grieve uh, your falls, it means that you are losing hope and losing trust in the Lord. No, consider this actually as a remedy that was sent to you by God to teach you humility. Listen to what one of the church fathers said about this. He says, defeat with humility is better than victory with pride. Defeat with humility is better than victory with pride. And St. Isaac the Syrian also says something very nice on these lines. He says, some please God by their virtues, others by their contrite and broken heart. Some please God by their virtues, which is a good thing, but others also please God by their contrite and broken heart. So even if you fall into sin and you show a contrite and a broken heart, this is pleasing to God. Unfortunately, we get discouraged because we have been trying for a long time without success. And as humans, we are always looking for quick answers for a quick success. But be careful that to gain chastity, you need to gain it in a proper way. It's not just for a moment or two or for a short period of time or even a long period of time. Chastity will go with you your whole life if you are actually working towards it in a proper way. But at least for somebody like me, it might take longer than others. But there's nothing wrong with taking longer than others. Does it matter who gets there first? Well, the important thing is that we all get there and we all get there safely. So we need to continue on fighting, even if it's for 14 years, like Mother Sarah used to fight. doesn't matter. Even if it's for 40 years, it doesn't matter. But at the end of time, then we can all stand before the Lord and to say, thank you, Lord, for granting me your mercy to be able to reach this virtue of chastity. And sometimes you can even trick the devil. Can you believe that? You can trick the devil yourself. Like the monk who used to get very hungry um, and was tempted to break his fast. He used to say to himself, I will only pray two more psalms before I eat. And he would pray two more psalms. And he would say, no, just two more psalms, then I will break my fast and eat. And then he will continue on his psalms and say, maybe one more psalm, then I will break my fast and eat. And he goes on doing this. And suddenly he breaks this um, trap of hunger that Satan puts on him uh, and the devil gives up on the monk and goes away and finds somebody else. Because the, the devil actually doesn't have much patience for those who are stern in thinking because he will find some other easy target. 
and then this monk would actually find that he has done his canon without breaking his, uh, his fast early. And it's the same with you and I. For example, if I am being fought an urge to sin, I can say to myself, let me sleep tonight in the comfort and in the bosom of my Father in heaven and let's see what happens tomorrow. When I actually calm my thoughts in that way and I calm my body in that way, the morning will come and maybe no sin will actually happen. So I have actually gained a great virtue by even be, being patient in my pursuit of the virtue of, um, of chastity. You see, when I postpone my failing or my falling and then I have become maybe somewhat exhausted, then the Lord's mercy comes in and covers for my weaknesses. And then I can continue on in my fight in the new day. I can see the day through and say, weeping may endure for an evening, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When the fight is really there and tough, I can push myself just that little bit more and see what gains I can actually achieve. And believe it or not, you will actually achieve so much. And finally, and to conclude with, I just want to quickly just read to you a beautiful uh, segment, again, by Abbot Sharman um, in his um, uh, conferences, or the book that's called The Conferences. And it actually talks about um, what uh, we should do when God actually grants us chastity. What should I do with it? It's, I'm not gaining a virtue just for the sake of virtue. Everything has to be for the glory of God. So what should I do when God grants me this uh, virtue of chastity? Listen to what he says. He says, One who has a quiet chastity should rejoice at the purity that has been bestowed upon him and should understand that he has acquired it not by his own effort and vigilance but by the protection of the Lord. And he should understand that his, bodily, that his body will persevere in this as long as the Lord mercifully permits it. See, it's not my own effort. I will persist in his chastity virtue as long as the Lord mercifully permits it. He should never trust in his own virtue, nor be weakened by a flattering sense of security, knowing that he will be um, solid or become dirty again if the divine protection departs from him for a little while. Therefore, in all contrition and humility of heart, one must pray continually for perseverance in this purity. This is a beautiful virtue of chastity. May God grant us that we are able to live and to achieve this uh, virtue of chastity that we can be pleasing before the Lord. And glory be to our God now and forevermore. Amen. According to our program, we have one more session, God willing, next week. And we will talk about two virtues next week. And that is the virtue of meekness and the virtue of this, uh, discernment. Two beautiful virtues um, that are quite achievable, um, again, uh, through um, the wisdom of the Desert Fathers. We'll cover that next week, God willing.